Hey guys, we're recording live tonight from the Monzo headquarters here in London. For those guys who don't know, Monzo is one of the new challenger banks coming to the UK. They're not only building a new bank, they're building all of their technology, all of their core systems, as well as an amazing experience for their customers. There's no real surprise on that basis then that myself and the rest of the 11FS team are pretty big fans of these guys in terms of what they're doing. We're talking to Jonas, who's the CTO. We're talking to Hugo, who is their head of design. And we've got Leah, who is their head of operations. So first up, we've got Simon talking to Jonas. So over to you guys. Hi, I'm here with Jonas, the CTO of Monzo. Jonas, nice to be with you. Uh, yeah, nice to be with you. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. So uh, Jonas, a couple of questions um, I'm going to run through with you today. But the first one is like, how did you find yourself in Monzo? Did, were, were aliens dropping you here? Was there, was there, was there a stalk that delivered you? Or? Uh, yeah, so uh, my co-founder, Tom, we, uh, we worked together uh, briefly for three months uh, on a dating website, of all things, in New York a, a few years ago. And I thought uh, he was um, a very, very smart and competent. So uh, ever since then, I've sort of been trying to uh, convince him to um, to come with me and, and sort of travel the world and make sustainable software as a service companies, selling selling this and that uh, uh, to people and uh, charging them some money for it, uh, learning different languages and so on and so forth. And uh, he had just agreed to come with me to Chile to do exactly that. Um, uh, when when uh, he uh, suddenly changed his mind and calls me up and says, I have this opportunity to start a bank here in London. And he's been going on about that for basically uh, ever since I knew him and apparently before then. So I said, great, um, I'll come check it out for three months and then I'll go to Chile. Uh, and here I am two years later, uh, still here. <laughs> so just checking it out for two years. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what you're building. Um, so you're building something here with Monzo and how would you describe what you're building to non-engineers as well? We're building a bank. That bit's fairly simple, but I think the way we're doing it is a little bit different uh, different from other banks. So uh, many, uh, many uh, end users don't really realize this or customers of banks, but uh, you know, when, for example, something like uh, Apple Pay launches, uh, you know, there's, there's two or three launch partners, and those are the really, really good banks that are uh, kind of good at technology. But then, you know, maybe some banks take two or three years. And um, that is generally because over, over the decades, they've accumulated a large sort of tree structure of IT systems where there's a lot of consolidation in the banking space. So you buy a little bank here and there, and it gets board approval. And then suddenly, the IT team has three months to incorporate all the customers and their IT system into the other IT system. So what you do is you just make an abstract IT system on top of all your IT systems and all their IT systems that are themselves the product of multiple acquisitions, possibly. So as a result, you end up with companies that have sort of 1,600 large IT systems that are uh, impossible, uh, impossible to change. Um, and so what we're trying to do is make it so that forever and ever, by the same method of counting, we just have one single IT system. And all the people um, that, uh, that worked on it focus on making it maintainable, extensible, scalable for the future. Pretty interesting. So it's like the difference between trying to drive 1,600 cars at once versus driving one car at once. I, I, I That's like exactly that. how it is, yeah. <laughs> so, I think, so how do you get um, one system to rule them all inside an organization? Is this something that you can do from scratch? Is it using cloud technology? Like, what's, what's, Is it just the benefit of starting from scratch? I mean, uh, Yeah, so, uh, so a large part is actually that. Um, so I always feel bad. We go to these banking conferences, and then there's the COOs and, and so on of large retail banks, and they're talking about how they're trying to make everything digital, but it's costing them billions and taking many years. And it is somewhat unfair to just say, oh, 
this is the solution because it is much easier to bring a solution when you when you have no legacy that you have to deal with. Um, so, yeah, we, you, because you mentioned cloud, so we're also we're also using cloud technology. Uh, and I should mention for the non-technical listeners, cloud technology simply means there is a server. You can imagine it kind of like a notebook computer, except without a screen. And it is not in a data center that you control, but in a data center that a, a trusted service provider, such as Google, Microsoft, or Amazon, um, provide. And the advantage of that is they just put so many computers in this data center that whenever you need a new one, you will just ask them for it, and they'll provision it for you within seconds, um, which makes it so you don't have to do all these things that you know large banks have to do, where they do forecasting and provisioning of their servers to like three times the expected maximum peak volume over Easter or something like that. So you're only buying what you need. You get yeah. it in seconds, and yeah. instead of it costing, um, so I'm aware of you know, stats I've heard around the industry of per web server, yeah. banks are paying something like half a million pounds per server, and how many servers might they need? To, I did to, not know that. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So th these are scary statistics, but actually, you know, uh, you talked a lot about um, kind of keeping your costs low. There's a blog post on on Monzo's blog about how you do keep your costs low. Is is that a strategic advantage for you guys? And and how do you keep your costs so low? So yeah, definitely uh, having having low costs is a strategic advantage. Although I would still say that you know, ultimately, financially, large banks will always have significantly more money to spend, or at least for a very uh, long time. So it's not really that it's a competitive advantage we have over them. They still have the competitive advantage in their huge war chest. It's more that it allows us to get off the ground at all, right? Like, we, we could not go to venture capital firms and say, give us uh, 20 million pounds and we'll spend all of it on a few servers. Yeah, it's, it's really what, what enable us to, uh, enables us to get off the ground. Yeah, take your entire venture capital funding and buy 40 servers with it. Yes, probably exactly. wouldn't go down so well. So what have been the biggest challenges so far? The biggest challenges? Um, I think we thought it would be much faster to get an um, unrestricted banking license. Uh, so if we had known two years ago just how much work it would be, I'm not sure we would have all done it, um, but uh, luckily, not, uh, at least not all of us <laughs> fully realized what we were in for. So, uh, so here we are, and I think after about two years end to end, we'll finally have the unrestricted banking license um, sometime, hopefully, very, very soon. So that was a huge challenge. I think another big challenge uh, some people may have, uh, may have seen was um, uh, we had to change our name, which is always annoying, so uh, we tried to make the best of it. And we just had a, um, a large company that we are not allowed to name. Uh, um, engage in a, in a trademark dispute with us, and so we, we had to change the name, and we solicited opinions from our community and got, I think, in the end, uh, 34,000, uh, no, 13,000 suggestions for a new name. So uh, we tried to sort of turn it into an advertising campaign, but when it, when it happened, it was really, really uh, quite frustrating. It's like renaming an 18-month-old baby. It's, it's kind yes, of difficult. Exactly. You kind of know it by that name at, at that point. But uh, yeah. 13,000 suggestions, that's a lot of friends and family to help you. Um, so then tell me a little bit about um, how big is your team and, and kind of how you feel the, the culture of being a technology company might help. And do, do other people that aren't in your team really get what it is you guys are, are trying to do from a tech perspective? Um, yes. So, so the first thing I should say is that I don't think it is right or good to, at the highest level of, of your org chart, if you will, have a distinction between engineers and non-engineers. And so, subsequently, like we don't think of, of sort of like the engineering team as like this one team, but instead there's interdisciplinary teams where. Um, you know, a team has a particular objective, such as keeping financial crime low. But then, 
on their team, there need to be technical and non-technical people. And sort of, sort of that is the core, dis uh, core distinction. And as a result, you get within each little team, uh, people, people learning from each other. Um, and to answer uh, the question about the size, so we're, I think, depending when this is aired, <laughs> probably 65 people uh, in the whole company. Um, at the moment, um, only 17 engineers, of which six are front-end on the iOS app or the Android app or, uh, or the web portals. The rest are back-end engineers connecting us up to the various payment schemes and, and keeping our servers running. There's something to be said about the culture, about getting everyone together. You know, there's, um, Jeff Bezos is famous for his pizza box teams. You yes. can feed the entire team out of a pizza, but actually there's not the tech versus the business yeah. versus the risk. They're, they're all kind of together. And I've seen this in pockets in banks, and mm -hmm. you know, people do it for a week or at an offsite, but actually this is how you organize yourselves. It's pretty interesting. So, so tell me about the future. You know, are you guys hiring? What are you looking for? What, what, what are you really looking forward to in the next couple of years? Wow, in the next couple of years, um, a, a lot of things. Primarily, we're looking forward to uh, migrating from, from this prepaid program that we currently have to our full current accounts, which I think is going to occupy us probably for the, for the first half of the next year. Uh, we are definitely, definitely hiring. So we're, uh, we are trying to become one of these very, very rare companies that have a virtuous cycle upwards of hiring where you know, even if you already think you're an attractive employer, every single, single time you hire somebody, you, you just try to reach just above what, what, you could, what you could get before. Because at the end of the day, there are incredibly uh, uh, smart and successful people in the world that could help us. You know, even if you're a world-famous security researcher, invented programming languages, or even won a Nobel Prize, some of them work in industry. And there's a few companies, like maybe a Facebook and maybe a Google, that have, have now the ability to, to hire from that pool. So we're very uh, conscious of, of this idea of, you know, if by the end of it uh, we've all played our cards right, then sort of uh, uh, Tom, Paul, and myself, and the entire early team will sort of be the dumbest people at the center, uh, you know, with, with the only value that we bring being the context that we have about the entire business. But, you know, I, I used to already think uh, of myself as, as probably one of the uh, best programmers in the teams that I used to work in, whereas now very, very much that is not the case. There are some people that just completely blow anything I could do out of the water. But isn't that a great motivation to come to work when you're surrounded by people that are better than you because you're learning? And, and you know, I've never heard anybody in, in uh, larger organizations articulate it in quite the same way, and I think that's a, a really powerful thing. Yeah, and so uh, as a result of that, though, we are especially on engineering supply constraints. So uh, a loud shout out, we're, we're hiring engineers and really across any, any functions or seniority or uh, um, uh, anything like that, we just need people that want to build a bank with us and ideally want to build a really robust bank uh, because unlike other technology startups, maybe uh, we cannot just take downtime or, or suddenly mess up uh, a bunch of payments and, and send them to the wrong accounts. I've found um, that there are some real amazing diamonds inside uh, large banking organizations that mm. have, you know, they typically, you know, have a family, so they yeah. want the stable salary. They're, they're not going to go work for a tech company. They they do like the stability of it. They're not going to take less salary and more equity. But, but these individuals aren't listened to and they aren't heard. And I think that might be an interesting angle for you guys. Um, but what I would say is, you know, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or Monzo, how do, how do they find you? How do they get in touch? Um, they can just send an email to me, jonas at monzo.com. Uh, they can go on our website, read a little bit more about us first maybe, um, go on our careers page, but yeah. We're, we're generally, I think the biggest value that we have internally and externally is just transparency. So there's not, there's not anything really that 
that we're secretly doing without you know, having it either on our blog or a community forum. Uh, also internally, there's, there's no secret projects. Everybody gets to read everybody else's email. Um, that is, uh, on the one hand, it's just like a knowledge transfer mechanism. But actually, on the other hand, it also you know, builds the trust that I think is necessary to, to accomplish great work together. Wow, can you imagine that in, in some of the banks? Well, Jonas, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, Thank you. Cheers. Now I'm here with Leah, Head of Operations from Monzo. Thank you for joining. You're very welcome. So tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you got into Monzo. How did, how did you land here? Uh, so I was actually quite fortunate. And I went to university with Tom. And back in December last year, he was like, I've joined this company. I've got a company. We're creating a bank. It's incredibly exciting. We're looking for someone from a math- with a mathematical background who can come and help build the financial model for the regulators. Would you be interested? And I was like, would I? <laughs> I love modeling. <laughs> um, and I'd actually, previous to that, I'd been at um, Bain Strategy Consultants uh-huh. um, and had built the financial model for RBS. We're allowed to disclose we were working for them because mm-hmm. it was in the press. Um, so I'd been the person who was responsible for building the financial model then for RBS and putting in all the inputs from across our teams. So I had a pretty good idea of how banks' balance sheets and P&Ls worked and was like, this sounds right up my street. So. Fantastic. So he was looking for a super nerd and you were right there with yeah, him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Having met some of the people now, I, I don't think I count as a super nerd. But. <laughs> Just a regular old nerd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. So as head of operations, operations and back office are often considered the unglamorous side of retail banking. So do you have 30,000 staff and call centers everywhere? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, how, what is it you do and, and what makes you guys, do you do anything different to the big banks? How would you describe operations? I banks? certainly hope so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I've never worked in operations in the big banks. So I can't make fair comparisons, but we certainly don't have 30,000 people or anything here. The team is under, under 20 and the majority of it are the people that you and other customers will have hopefully chatted to on our, our in-app chat. There's obviously, that's the biggest part of it. So it's the, the frontline operations talking to our customers. In terms of the back office, we're very fortunate in that we're extremely integrated with our engineers. So we have three engineers who are dedicated to working with operations. So everything from building very efficient tools to fixing the bugs the customers are reporting um, and just generally being superstars. And I think that actually is what differentiates us from big banks is that engineering is seen as a core part of operations. Interesting. And so we automate as much as humanly possible. So you don't build a new feature and start thinking immediately about um, what script the call center needs? No, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. We're, it's interesting, actually, the, the script thing. We started off like extremely free range, so people basically just say what they want. We started to use um, like a little bit more kind of structure around what people are saying for specific things to make sure customers are getting consistent answers. So mm-hmm. it doesn't depend entirely who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly not a script. People, it's a natural conversation. People put their own tone on it. They write it how they, how they would in real life. And so is there something about empowering somebody to be themselves in those communications and trusting who you hire rather than trying to hire as cheaply as possible and then just give them a script? Is, is that a differentiator really around customer experience? Definitely. Because it strikes me that um, it's an area that you're competing in that most people wouldn't think of competing. Like competing ha- by having the most human operations department is is kind of pretty interesting. Human and incredibly intelligent as well. So we want to empower everyone who's actually talking to the customer to be able to fix that issue themselves where possible. Um, so I think those two things actually make a huge difference because one, not only does the person you're talking to really care about you and want to help you, but two, they can actually communicate how 
it's going to be fixed and how long that's realistically going to take because they're going to do it themselves. So, so it's empathy and intelligence. So if you were to get a job straight out of university working for Monzo in their ops department, you're not going to be bored out of your mind. You're actually going to have a fun job, is that? Definitely. I mean, I did all the support for the first, like, four months of our, of our prepay program, and I loved it. And I still, I still get on there. It's just you like, still sneak in. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's really, really fun. So um, people are very complimentary about the in-app chat service. Um, do people not just want to ring you up at some point and have a chat? Do they not want to pop in? Do you not want to, people not want to do the innocent smoothie thing and just like get some free smoothies and play ping pong with you? Like, <laughs> Well, we have um, product testing sessions. If anyone wants to come in and give like live feedback, they can come along to those sessions on Thursday. We, we do get people who call us. We have a telephone line. Mm-hmm. It's printed on the back of the card and on our website. But generally speaking, people don't tend to use it. We want the in-app chat to be instant, which for me is the main reason I would call my bank is because I want them to respond to me immediately, not because I enjoy talking on the phone. Um, And so because we offer that service with the in-app chat, actually very few people do. And it's only when either they're not getting a very fast response for whatever reason, perhaps it's particularly busy, or they're they're very angry and they want to vent. Um, that, that they phone in. Although, actually, to be honest, most of the, the numbers we uh, the calls we get on that number tend to be recruiters. <laughs> like, this is a support line, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, you Send us an email. <laughs> uh, so you've got a very active online community as well, and many big banks have tried that, but usually ended up with a ghost town. Why is yours active? Is there something there, you know, you're giving away free money? Is there cake going? Like, <laughs> Honestly, I think it's it's the community itself, right? It's a bit like a chicken and egg problem, but like if you don't have a community, then there's no point having space for a community because no one's going to communicate on it. Um, whereas we're very fortunate that the, the people who got their Monzo card, like the very early adopters and, and the people who are still early adopters now who are coming on board, really, really care. And so actually, if you look on the community forum, most of the conversation is between like community members rather than staff. Um, so I think, I think that's really key. I, I would say that's the main difference between ghost town community forums yeah. and community forums yeah, that really work. There was already a community there. Yeah. So um, speaking of communities of, of people, you know, kind of, especially working together, um, I know that you're quite passionate about diversity in the tech startup world. Um, how's that shaped up at Monzo and, and what more can, can the tech community be doing to, to really aid diversity in the workplace? Yeah, I think it's interesting. So I wrote a blog post, which I was surprised to see, thanks to, to Facebook memories, that it was a year ago last week, I think. Um, on diversity debt, because we definitely, we're not where we'd like to be at Monzo. We certainly weren't a year ago, and we're still not quite there today, although we've improved hugely. Um, full team's not in today, but you'd, you'd see it if you came in on the Monday. In terms of things that I think both we can do and the community can do, I think talking about it more, like being aware that there is an issue, like accepting that there's an issue, um, and then proactively going out and like, seeking people from different backgrounds who can do this and letting them know that they're welcome. Yeah. Um, I think often if you go somewhere, you look for people like you and that makes you feel comfortable. It's the unconscious and, bias that um, people naturally seek themselves. And, and then with that unconscious bias, people feel like it's not okay to talk about it. But Or, or if it is okay to talk about it, there's some HR-directed meeting in which we all sit and talk about it and it's time-boxed rather than it being something that's worked on like any part of the product, any part of the business. I think that's a, a different approach. And again, there's marrying the humanity into that where it's something we want to achieve. We want to get great people. We recognize that diversity would improve our output and improve our results. So why wouldn't 
why wouldn't we? And more than that, it enables you to attract the best people, right? Like when you go to interview somewhere, if you don't, if like, if you're not interviewed by anyone who you feel you can relate to at all, yeah. then you're like, actually, this is this isn't a place that I want to spend like yeah. over fifty percent of my time. It's absolute talent retention. And, and speaking of you know, kind of getting the right talent in, you know, how have you dealt with that on the operation side? Have you found it, it's been easy to recruit the talent? Have you found you know, are you always looking for great people, or have you, are you done now? You're full. Like- oh no, we're, we're definitely always looking for great people. I, well, I hope our customer base will grow faster than our ability to improve the technology, so we will continue to need to hire people, like, not at the same rate that our, our customer base is growing, but still, at, like, I think over the next year we'll still be looking more or less continuously to get people in. And, and then sp- speak to me a little bit about the, the future of you know, Monzo and, and operations. Where, you know, what do you want to achieve with it? What would you say, you know, if you look back in five, ten years and say, I'm proud of those things, are the, are the things that you have in mind or are you just enjoying the journey? No, there are definitely things that I have in mind. We'd like to be in a place where we have like one person supporting 100,000 customers because our systems are just so good and we automate so much that actually it, it, it's that easy for, for someone to do it. I think that will involve a, like, a heavy investment on an engineering side. So we want to build all our tools in-house. We're not doing that at the moment, but we're, we're slowly bringing them in. And... I think that will be the crucial difference is just that combination of operations and technology. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, Leah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining me. You're very welcome. Excellent. So now we're, we're talking to Hugo Corneo. And uh, like say, I say, I always kind of kill people's names, pronunciation. So, but you seem like such a nice gentleman. You're probably not going to point out Did that that's wrong. Uh, thank you. Appreciate, appreciate your lying, maybe, uh, maybe <laughs> rather than your honesty. So tell us a little bit more about your background then. You're uh, the head of design here yeah. at uh, Monzo. Yeah. What, how, what's your, your history then? How did you get here? So I've been working as a designer for the last, I don't know, like six, seven years. But I, I actually studied uh, computer science. So I'm an engineer in computer science. I used to work as a developer. Um, I, I guess I was this kind of developer that really likes design and architecture. And like I could have studied architecture was like, what should I study architecture? Or, or, or I really like computers. Like this idea of computers are the, the most powerful machines in the world. Right? Like the idea of rule them, I really like. Like I'm going to make computers do what I want them to do. And then at some point, um, I learned that you could uh, like devote your life to design as a profession. That's something that is not like here. There's there's better education for that here in the UK. But in in Spain, things were still a bit um, uh, not so professional. So when I found the opportunity to to, I, after finishing my, my degree in computer science and working as, a, as an engineer, I made a, um, I attended a, a master's in, in HCI, like interaction design, and then I started working on interaction design. That's nice. Yeah. So you, you went from making computers do what you want to customers doing what you want, right? As a designer, it's... <laughs> the, the, the things that customers want to do. Yeah, <laughs> so that's interesting. So you, you made a sort of a conscious decision to move from yep. developer to designer. Yep. Um, do you think that people who have got a development background will be better designers? Because I guess almost um, the, the label that's pushed on many designers that don't have that background is you design for... Uh, almost an, an unreachable capability. You know, you're you're moving towards something that a developer can never actually realize. So um, that kind of balance must be, uh, you know, really really helpful. Yeah, I think I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dare to say uh, it's a better design. I think it's a different kind of design. You could say like, that. Tell, no, tell everybody you're a no, better I designer. I, I don't believe in <laughs> that. Like, actually, I, I'm 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 a douchebag for many things, but that in particular, <laughs> I think I think 
to design, you can, you can arrive from different places. I come from engineering, and I think that gives me certain strengths. I think you think things in systems by default. You, you design stuff that scales very well. You design stuff that is solid, that is achievable, and it's feasible. Um, and I think that's a very good thing. Like it's, it's the concept of like gestalt engineer, right? Like this idea of like industrial designers, like people that care about something that needs to be built. So they need to think about the machine that is going to build the piece of plastic that covers the radio. It's not just, you know, and the inners and all that. Many designers come from art as well. Um, and I think that's there's tons of value in that, in the, the humanistic like side of things, like people that brings better references about history, of about art that probably I don't have. Um, so I think I think that balance is interesting, and probably you need a team with a bit of everything. That is something that at most we are we are doing. So, for example, you can see all this good stuff. It's made by by Sam, one of my designers. He's a graphic designer. He comes from art, and he brings all that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at the end, I think there's different paths to achieve kind of like the same results. So one of, one of the things that I found really, uh, so I read a couple of the blog posts that you mm -hmm. uh, you put out, and, and obviously one of the, the changes from moving from Madrid to working in London was yep. uh, was all of the uh, interesting Londoners and their, uh, their their particular take on uh, on, on English. Yep. Um, I loved the post that you put out about the uh, the the, the Chapel Chap yep. a, a story. Can you tell our listeners a little bit yeah. more about that? Because I, I thought it was fascinating, <laughs> and actually it showed such a level of uh, of actually humility in terms of doing things that. It, it sort of made sense in the context of actually uh, everything that we're seeing from a design perspective. Yeah, I think I think it's it's one of those that um, I, I came I came to to London with my partner as a sabbatical. Like we both had like our careers, and it was like um, let's let's move move to the UK. Um, and we kind of we were like seeing that this would end eventually. So it's like okay, let's let's try to be there before before things like uh, happen, right? Um, and, and the, the English uh, was the first thing. Like we came to study English, so we we like burned some of, of our savings in going to a college and tried to learn uh, proper English, which is something that I, I totally realized that I'm I'm not there yet. So how do I improve that? Um, I'm surrounded by British speakers, and, and and people that are really really nice. So they will never tell you you are making a mistake because they know that you are making a great effort in order to to perform. You mean like when somebody says your name wrong, you don't correct them on it, that type of thing. It's not the same because you don't, you don't want to, 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 to leave like saying my, my name properly, right? So I, I thought like, what's the best way of being very, very clear that I want that feedback? I really want you to tell me, look, this is not correct. Do it this way. Um, and yes, you can tell it, but what if I give you something in return? And the Chupa Chups thing, I really like that it's a Spanish product. Uh, and I like that it kind of represents, this is kind of inside joke, but represents part of the, the Spanish design, that there's the whole trend of, uh, we've been pioneers, uh, putting a stick on things. Like, for example, the, the mop to, to, to mop the, the floor, apparently it's Spanish design, that is like, take a, take a, like a rug and put a stick on it. Yeah. Or take a, a piece of sweet and put a stick on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's kind of like a joke. And there's an emoji for it that is always, like, cool. So we have this tool in Slack that if you say, I, I say something on Slack like wrongly, and you use the emoji of the lollipop. Uh, it, it brings me a notification, so I go in person. I give you the lollipop and I say thanks, and I try to learn why the mistake was. It's a, it's a nice touch. It, uh, when you're a you know a, a organization with a, a billion customers and uh, you know a large base, you're, you're going to sort of do yourself a mischief, really, aren't you? The uh, ho hopefully by then your your English will be absolutely spot on, but. <laughs> So I, I guess moving on to the work that you guys are doing, because obviously it's a, quite a big challenge to, to sort of reinvent banking in the way that you guys have been doing. So 
what's been the most, I guess, challenging part hmm. of designing a bank? You know, you've, you've had, it's an amazing opportunity, but um, it must be quite tough. Well, yes, I, I mean, I'm a believer of uh, this tagline that you use, guys, of the, there's only 1% done, right? Um, the, the benchmark is really low in terms of, of the legacy banks, and I think everybody agrees on that. Um, and that's, that's not necessarily a good thing, because just delivering a bit of value, you, you might think that you are doing something amazing. So probably the, the hardest thing is to, to try to be real, realistic, what uh, Leah was saying before about uh, you go to the street and you ask people and they don't know what Monzo is, right? Um, being realistic, trying to, to focus, um, yeah, focus on, on the things that really matter, uh, not get too crazy about, I don't know, some, something for ex that in particular I'm, I'm really proud of how we design things here is um, we try to keep everything native. And by native, we mean the, the components and the logics and the patterns that people understand in their platforms. Uh, so we are not going over the top. Like the app feels, I always try to think like it's like, how would it feel like a native Apple uh, bank or a, a Google bank in Android, right? That like there's things that are bespoke, for example, like we have a graph uh, on top that lets you navigate and things like that. But overall, there's, it's, it's like considerate design. It's not over the top. Um, and I, I think that keeping that mentality had helped us a bit to not fall in like rabbit holes of like customizing things and doing things that at the end are impossible to use and all that. But so where, uh, I guess given the, like you say, the, the bar is not um, mm -hmm. uh, not a really large bar when it comes to customer experiences within financial services, where do you guys kind of look for inspiration? Uh, I, I look, in terms of the digital products, I look to, th to, to services that have managed to serve the same amount of users or the same kind of customer satisfaction that we like. So I look at Spotify and I look at Instagram and I look at Facebook and Twitter and Sonos and like the things that you use and love, the ones that are in the front page of your phone and that you love. And you think every time, like every time I order a Deliveroo, this, this is great. So it's, those are the kind of experiences that I look at. Um, then I, I look a lot at um, industrial design and mid-century stuff. Um, and like 60s, because I think it's formally uh, correct, and I, I really like that kind of design um, and the principles that that, that brings. So I, I like this idea of doing stuff that potentially could be timeless, even though it's it's, it's, it's just an idea, right? Uh, so yeah, that's mainly where where I look. And then of course, like we keep an eye on on what big banks are doing and, and fintech, of course. But yeah, I, I don't think it's that much about. Um, like solving the, this scenario of finance is about other services that have managed to make the same impact, mm. solving other parts of your life. Yeah. That could be like, like transportation, right? Like mm. Uber or whatever. Well, like you say, it's, it's areas where people are using millions of, uh, you know, using an app millions of times, then actually patterns that people recognize and understand, yeah. it's, it's being in that space, isn't it? Making it effortless in terms of where you are. One of the, the other posts that I saw that you uh, you spoke about recently was um, your experience with Apple Watch and the um, particularly the activity app and almost a, an element of guilt in there of uh, stopping to use it. And, and I know you haven't got your Apple Watch on today, but you have. But the idea of uh, building in almost like forgiveness into yeah. your design process. And obviously, I think with uh, you know the, the lack of steps that I do lately, you know, Apple have done a good job of not making me feel horrific yeah. about. Uh, the calories I'm consuming and the lack of steps that I'm taking. Um, so how are you guys kind of thinking about that within mm. the FS space? Because uh, obviously people don't always do what they think they should do. 
and half of the problem is really shining a light on the activity and the behaviours that they are exhibiting, uh, but doing that in a way that isn't becoming big brother. So yep. how are you sort of rolling that into your design thinking? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Um, I think it's a balance of things. Um, when, when you interview, and, and you guys, you see it, when you interview um, customers or, or, or people, everybody has this, this feeling, right? I'm that guy that asks, well, how do you manage your money? Um, you get to see that there's like a whole spectrum of people that, from people that, um, they say, the way I want to manage my, my money is my mother giving me pocket money every morning and I can only spend that. And if at 6 p.m. I don't have any more money, like I go home and I don't have dinner. And there's other people that like to have total control and they download like Excels and all that. And then you have all these other people that they say, I use my card until it stops working. Right? Like that's my management. Um, how do you deal with all that? Um, I think it's a mix of probably of many things. Like you need to understand forgiveness in, in your network, as in make things that work even if your friends are not in Monzo. Like you shouldn't feel bad for, or you know what I mean, or to not have access to other things. Um, like everybody has felt this, like, oh, I use WhatsApp, but my friends use Telegram. So at the end, I need to download Telegram too. All that stuff, I think that's important. Um, forgiveness in terms of making the making the service to keep working even if you don't use it eventually for a period of time for whatever reason. So things that don't, things that we are not very good at right now on Monzo, for example, like to be able to manage averages, like the average of your spending. If you don't want to use the card over a month, that's when make feel that you've been spending less because sure. you haven't, you've been using a different product yeah. or whatever. So I think he's, and uh, Jason is, he's very good with this analogy of the, like the battler thing, right? Like, someone that gives you the right information when you want it and is able to understand when you don't want it sure. because you are enjoying yourself or whatever. Mm. But it's a, it's a tricky balance. I don't think we have a key. Like, but, but we iterate and we, we push things forward and we learn. Yeah, I guess that iteration process is, is sort of key in that, isn't it, in terms of actually where you're going. But I guess one of the, the, you know, the major things that you guys have done recently, uh, you know, aside from all the, um, the actual customer-facing pieces that you've delivered, is, is sort of uh, exposing your roadmap. You know, this was a, a really interesting decision that you made. You know, you put out there the was it the eighteen month roadmap yeah. of activity that you're going to yeah. be putting forward. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of big banks look at that with absolute glee because they kind of feel that they can, you know, see what you're going to be doing mm -hmm. and how you're going to be doing it. What what was the thinking behind exposing it? So I think I think it's to try to to make us. I mean, it's it's a mix. I think part is to try to make us met a statement about how open we are. I think that's part. The other part is we have like 1,500 or so investors that uh, participated of our uh, crowdfunding campaign. So we want to give them that information. Like you've put some money on us and we want to show you that we are going to deliver and so you can keep some accountability and like keep us on our toes. I think that's a very good thing. Um, and it, it lets the rest of the customer base to see the kind of things that we are doing. So. Um, if we don't have a feature that for you is very important or for your friend that you are pitching the bank to them and they say, no, oh, I really need Apple Pay, let's say. I've been using this other bank and I have Apple Pay and Monzo doesn't have. But you can go there and say, chances are that in four months they will have it. Like that kind of thing, I think helps a lot. Uh, and at the end of the day, we, we do believe in execution of things, not in like the ideas are there. Like so far I haven't seen something that is like mind blowing, the idea itself. Usually the, the problem happens with execution and we, we are really um, like confident about our ability to execute. So, I mean, it's okay. Like at the end of the day, like 
we have these offices like windows, everybody could peek and look, yeah. you know, like <laughs> what's the point? We just leave it open. Do you have that? Do you often have just big banks standing at the doors where like, looking through? Yeah. Yeah. Gotta, gotta cover up some of these post-it notes. <laughs> you, you, you open the door and, and you take like a broom and go, go away. <laughs> That was invented by the Spanish, right? The Peruvians. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that and, and taking people out. Indeed. So, so what? How, how do you go about deciding what goes on that roadmap? Then, I guess, hmm. because it, there's a lot of different organisations that approach, um, I guess, prioritisation in a, uh, a very you know different hmm. ways in terms of what they do. So, how do you guys at Monzo decide what goes on the roadmap next? So that's that's a mixed thing. The, I mean, the, the total um, uh, owner of that is the head of product, is Ola Mart. Um, this guy owns the roadmap. So his role basically is uh, to deal with uh, the CEO and shareholders and all the company and me and, and, and decide like all that. But the, the input that they basically take is the things that people are asking us, asking like things that um, we see it in customer support, in the forum, things that really people want, plus things that we know we need to have a current account. So for example, you know, like there's certain things that you need. Um, we were saying before, like managing direct debits, like you will need that. So we need to build it. Um, and probably the third one is like, the, the, I don't know how to say, like, like the, it's the constraints itself of our resources and of our like, um, bandwidth, like the things that we can actually build. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a, it's a tricky, tricky problem. I, I, I'm happy that I don't need to, to take those decisions. <laughs> and, and typically, I guess, you know, this is something that all of the, all of the big banking organizations are usually really, really struggle with, is actually going from a, you know, a post-it note or a good idea or a concept to, to something that's actually a, you know, defined a feature that's on a roadmap that a customer can actually use. Typically, what's your cycles? You know, how, how, hmm. how quickly do you go from, hey, guys, I've got this great idea to, um, to, to sort of releasing that into uh, something that all of us can use? When things are really, really small, that cycle, I've seen it like, it's, it's like, to be honest, it's the days that you go home, like, you're like, I don't know, like glowing because you had it done maybe in three, four days. Like, sometimes the bottleneck is the time to process the app store. Like, things like, it's like, oh, my God, this is, this is great. Small things, um, improvements or things that are, uh, and things that usually have the biggest impact, like like changing an emoji in a notification, things like that. Um, tasks that are like chunkier, um, it's usually, I, I think it kind of depends on the project. We are not really like strict or formal about processes, um, but usually it's, uh, we have some sort of like kickoff, brainstorming sort of thing. Um, we explore what's out there, what our products are solving that kind of problem, if they are. Um, solutions, things that uh, if the area that we are building has some like visualization requirements, we, we try to explore what's the best shape and form to, to present that information. It needs to be uh, digital or needs to be analog or is synthetic or is analytic, all that kind of like design work. Then our uh, design team, we, we work a bit on that. We rearrange, we try to put engineers in the room, we see if that makes sense, the kind of things that we are doing. Mm -hmm. we, exp we usually explore um, like conceptually a few ideas and we sim like simulate them on, on our heads, but we usually try to, to go down to one design that we think is the best and we start testing with people as we start uh, building it. So we don't, for example, we don't do wireframes. We skip all that, like we go from, from sketching in paper to go to sketch software to yeah. build actual uh, screens. And then in many cases, we, we kind of translate that to, to actually build it on web or iPhone or Android really quickly. So, I mean, it could be smoother, like, because there's many roles involved and all that. 
But yeah, I think, I think we have a cycle that gives us like, tons of speed. And, and, and that for us, the output, when you were saying like these big banks and all that, the post-it, that the post-it is a very good example. Like post-its are very good to create like output that is not really output. It's like, oh, everybody feels like, oh, we've done, we've done an amazing work. Like today, this was money well spent. Um, not necessarily, like what's the output of that? For us, the output is, there's an update of Monson. You click and you have new stuff. Yeah, I think that's a, a key thing, isn't it? We, uh, in the industry, we see a lot of innovation in innovation labs, and really it only matters when a customer's actually engaging with it and using it. You know, you're, you're there to build a bank and change people's everyday banking, aren't you? And uh, that only matters when I'm using it, which is, uh, which is important. I, I guess, you know, to, to sort of close up, I, I guess there's a, you know, a bit of a theme through a lot of these things, but, you know, there are, there are people out there uh, who maybe have looked at the roadmap and gone, yeah, you know, we can, we can do that. You know, I've been thinking about this thing. We've got a prototype in the lab that does that. But actually, I guess that's sort of slightly missing the point in some of these things, right? So, so what, what's the, and this is a hard one really to ask a designer, but what, what's the, the kind of core genesis, do you think, behind um, the way in which you design? I, I would say, like here at Monzo, it's that we are all aligned in this, with, with the same purpose. And our purpose is our customers, which is, I mean, it's easy to say. The thing is, like, big organizations usually is not that easy. Like, you have, like, you have buildings full of people that are pointing in a direction completely different to other buildings of the same company. They all get their salaries paid in from the same company, but they have completely different objectives. Uh, that's really tough. Like, how, because there's things that you're going to, your customers are asking for that are going to damage the personal objectives of other teams and things like that. We don't have those problems. Um, I think it's part of how we, we are building it and part that we are small as well. Like companies that are huge, they suddenly they have other priorities and there's people that want to, to um, I don't know, to, to get like a, a quick back on something to maximize their metrics on this and they are damaging something on the long term, things like that. Um, that's why many good ideas in, like in these innovation centers and labs get buried. They have brilliant people. I've worked for them. Like in, in, in Spain, I, I've, I've worked for some banks and um, they have the best people. They pay the most. They have the, the nicest offices. And at the end, they can't deliver in many occasions because they, they don't find the, the, like the internal really structure to let them publish that or to push it to yeah. customers. So I think it's a, it's a really tough problem. But again, like our organizations that are incredibly profitable, everything is going great. So why should they change, right? So it's, it uh, sounds simple when you say it out loud, right? A uh, insatiable drive for, cu for the customer. It's, uh, you know, easier said than done, I guess, right? Yeah, but so far, I think we are managing to do it. Like, it's, we, we have an advantage as well. Like, right now, we, we are not profitable and we are not caring about that. And that helps a lot. Um, is this um, uh, Amazon one-hour delivery, Prime, whatever, like, they lose money with that, of course. Like, how, how, how the hell is going to be profitable to send you something like... Um, but, but they are raising the level of expectations about how a service or an e-commerce needs to be delivered. That's what we are doing with banking. So how we raise those levels of customer service, like focusing on our customers. Great. Well, Hugo, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, thank you very much for creating the product you've created. So <laughs> thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jonas, Hugo, and Leah. I have absolutely no doubt that you guys are going to get to a billion customers. But that's it. That's all we've got this week. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, feel free to give us a holiday gift by reviewing us on iTunes. And see you next week for our year in review. Catch you later. Oh, 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 o